Isaiah 48 is our text this morning. So if you would turn there and a copy of the Bible, be able to look at one, this would be a real help to you. Our goal as a church is always to let the Word of God guide everything. Christ rules His church through His Word, and so our job is to put ourselves in under that Word. And having a copy to be able to look at and, and, and examine is such a help, such a blessing. So get one out if you can. Isaiah 48. Ancient Babel, the place where they built a huge tower to make a name for themselves, the site of the city that would later be called Babylon, is the proverbial city of human pride. The Bible uses it this way from beginning to end. This is the city that says, we will be independent from God. And what is it to be independent from God? I mean, there's God, and then there's everything else that He made. So if you say, I'm independent from God, and all of this that God made is dependent on Him, what are you doing by setting yourself up as a, as a God? We will not have God over us. We will not have God telling us what to do. We will decide good and evil for ourselves. We will make up our own minds rather than submit ourselves to living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Babel, Babylon is a city of human pride. It's a city full of idols, of man-made gods, things that people cherish and love besides the one true and living God. It's a city where people refuse to submit themselves bow the knee to the Lord and to His anointed one. This is Babylon. And that literal ancient city of Babylon became the place where the people of Judah, where God's people found themselves for most of the 6th century B.C. They were strangers and exiles there, far away from their home. They were God's people, but dwelling in the midst of an idol-worshiping world. And in fact, that is the that is a, a great parallel to the way that New Testament believers are li- live today. We live, as it were, still in this present evil world, in the world's Babylon, while yet our hearts and our 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 souls are at home in the heavenly Jerusalem. But we are surrounded, like those ancient people were, with all of that paganism and all of that idolatry. And how quickly that idolatry becomes internalized and those idols become the idols of our own hearts. Isaiah is sent to proclaim ahead of time to that generation who would stand in the exile. He foresaw their 70 years of captivity and he also foresaw the future judgment of God upon that nation, upon Babylon. And of course, that was predicted a couple of different passages in this book so far, including the last chapter, chapter 48. We saw the judgment of God upon the pride of Babylon. And that, of course, is the judgment of God upon every man and upon every civilization that rises up against God, that refuses to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord laughs and holds them in derision. He sets His King upon his holy hill who rules with an iron scepter. And the Bible says that one day the Lord Jesus Christ's rule and reign will be made visible and public and he will dash in pieces like a potter's work all the resistance that stands against him today. 
And He will bless those who have trusted in Him and waited on Him all of these years. This is the Word of God, friends. This is what's happening. This is what's coming. You can bank on it. Just as surely as you can know that Christ came in the first place, you can bank on the fact that this is the way it's going to be. And now in chapter 49, the Lord turns from speaking to Babylon or about Babylon directly to speaking to His people, to speaking to Judah. And He calls out to them in chapter 49 again and again. Remember, I pointed this out last Lord's Day. And we see that right here in verse 12, right, which is the first verse of our text. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 22. The very first words, the very first verse there, Listen to me. Listen to me, O Jacob. And again in verse 14, listen. And in 16, hear this. The Lord is pleading with people to listen to Him because these are obstinate, hard-headed, stiff-necked people whose ears are not opened to His Word. They attribute all of the goodness that they have received. They've gone so far as to attribute all of God's blessing to the idols of the world. I mean, how foolish and how wicked that is. These people, blessed above all people, they had become so much like the people into whose lands that they had been sent. Idolatrous, obstinate. This land in which they were supposed to be sojourners and exiles they, their hearts have become just like those people. And that's, that's always the danger, by the way, is we live in a world that's filled with idolatry. We live in a world that's filled with unbelief. We live in a world that's filled with other gods besides the one true and living God is to listen to the world so much, to imbibe the thinking and the, the speaking of the world to such a degree that, that our homeland seems so far off as to be almost... Unreality. That's the danger. And so the Word of God comes to people like that to prepare them to, to enter into their homeland and to be where God has called them to be in His presence. Now I want you to look down into the text. Uh, verses 12 to 22 is our text. And I want you to look for the first command. Now, I mean, there are commands to hear and to listen to what God says, but in, beyond that, beyond just those kinds of things, the first real imperative, the first real action point, the first real message for the people of God in terms of doing something and responding to what God's planned and who He is. Where is it? Do you see it? Down in verse 20, isn't it? Verse 20, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, when Cyrus gives that decree, what are you supposed to do? Go. Go back to Jerusalem and declare this with a shout. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth and say, The Lord has redeemed His people, His servant Jacob. Declare it. Proclaim it. Right. So what are the two real applications of all that God's saying to us this morning in this text. I'm just pointing it out to you so you can carry it away with you. This is God's word for all of us today. He says, go out, leave, and proclaim. Go out from Babylon and go out with a shout of joy and praise to God. That's the message. Now let's look at the text again. Beginning in verse 12, the Lord 
calls all creatures to listen to him. The Lord is calling. You see that here? Isn't that what the Lord's doing? He's calling to all creatures to listen to him. First of all, he makes his call specifically to Israel, to Judah. He says in verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, listen to me, he says. And that word listen there is in the singular. This is a call to a singular people. The people who God has called to himself, summoned to be his own people, and now the Lord is pleading with that people to listen to him. And sadly, most of them refused to hear his voice. So many of that nation had no ears to hear. As he said up in verse 8, from of old your ears have not been opened. And that was why the Lord revealed the new things that he would do as hidden things, verse 6. Remember that from last week? He revealed those new things as hidden things. And I want to remind you that the Lord can reveal and conceal at the same time. The Lord can literally do that in the same sermon. It can be the revelation of God to one and an obscuring of himself to another. I was thinking about that just this week in uh, sharing the gospel and thinking about the many times that I've tried to articulate the gospel and press home the claims of Christ and how, for one, the light comes on and you see a turn and a change. And for another, it is literally like I'm communicating the same thing and it's all going past. Have you ever felt that, trying to communicate the gospel? And, it, and, it, and it's like nothing clicks. And what does the Lord do to these people who have heard his words so many times, again, he is appealing to them. He's appealing to them to listen, to truly hear. Not just to listen, but to hear, to receive. That's what the Lord is doing through this, not only to his ancient people long ago, but through this inspired word to you today. The Lord's word, I trust, will come through this text to you, saying to you this morning, listen, hear me. Hear my voice. Pay attention. Open your heart to me. And I hope that you will be like Samuel of old, who in the sermon, in the reading of the text, and in your being exposed to the Word of God, that you will hear something of the voice of God. I'm not talking about something extra biblical going on in your. I'm talking about the Word of God coming to you with power. And that when you hear it, you will like Samuel, be taught to say, Speak, Lord. Speak, for your servant hears. The Lord is appealing with his people to hear his word. And notice that the Lord follows this appeal with a reminder of who he is. And that is the reason that they ought to listen. Because of who is speaking. Right? We all know what it's like to listen to some people. And you can sort of tune out, right? Because who they are is not really important to you and to your, you know, your life and your relationships. And there's a thousand voices out there and you're just not going to be able to go on without sort of tuning some of them out. But when some people speak, right, when your wife speaks 
or your husband or your parent, you want to tune your ears. Why? Because of who they are. And the Lord immediately follows up his admonition to listen, to remind them of who he is. He says, I am he, recalling that appearance even of the Lord to Moses in the burning bush. Who are you? I am. I am who I am. I mean, how else can you describe the God to whom nothing else compares? <laughs> he is God. I am He. I am the first. I am the last. He reminds them, I am the only one in my category. I'm the first and the last one there, and there's nothing in the middle. I am God alone. No other gods. And everything else has its origin in Him. He says, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens, and when I call to them, they do what? What do the heavens and the earth do when God calls to them? They stand forth together. What else would they do when the God of all calls? His voice brought forth the heavens and the earth. At his let there be, there was. That's the authority of the Lord. And now that same voice, that same voice that called heaven and earth to attention is calling to Jacob and calling to Israel. And will they refuse to hear. And he calls not only Israel, but I want you to look at verse 14, because I think there's a, there's a broadening of the appeal here. The Lord calls all peoples to listen. Assemble all of you and listen. And now it's shifted from the singular to the plural. The first listen was to a singular people. This listen is to plural peoples. And the question that the Lord is going to put to Israel and to all of the nations of the world is this. You see it in the text? Who among them, that is among all of the nations and all of their gods, all of their idols, who among them has done what? Who has declared these things? These things that I'm bringing about, who declared them ahead of time. Again, the Lord is going back in this text to the testimony of predictive prophecy, isn't he? There's something significant about that. <laughs> in the Scripture, the Lord himself puts it before us again and again as a testimony to those who have ears to hear that uh, they would know that he is God alone. And he gives testimony, he declares what he will do. And remember in this text, he's declaring new things, right? These things of verse 14 are the new things of verse 6. What are the new things that God is about to do in his predictions? He's predicted that he will raise up Cyrus, somebody named Cyrus, who at the time of Isaiah's writing was an unknown. That Cyrus the Great wasn't born. He will raise up Cyrus, a Persian, and that man will conquer Babylon. He will redeem God's people out of their captivity. He will deliver them from the exile, return them to the holy city, and rebuild the temple of God. That's what this deliverer will do. And the Lord alone declared these things. But last week we also, I mentioned this, you know, it's kind of like looking Looking at these prophecies about Cyrus is kind of like looking up at the moon. And when you look up at the moon, what do you see? You see, here you've gone out in a really dark place on a night when there's a full moon and looked out. 
and it's so bright, and it casts a shadow. You can see your shadow from the moon. Now, here in the city, we don't see that very often, but the moon is a great light. The Bible says it's a great light to rule over the night, a great ruler up there in the heavenly realm. But if you look at it more closely and you observe it for a period of time, not just a casual glance, but you really inspect the moon, what will you be, begin to see before long? Well, you'll notice that you'll see signs, you'll see indications that it's actually not a light of its own, but it's actually reflecting the light of another. And you can tell this because when you look up at various times of the month, you can see various uh, portions of that moon lit up as it's at different angles to the sun. And there are certain times when the entirety of the moon's light becomes obscured in the matter of a few moments as the earth comes in between the moon and the light of the sun. And it becomes apparent to you upon closer inspection that that thing, as wonderful and as beautiful as it is in itself, is actually a reflection of something else. And in many ways, that's what's going on here. As you look at this text more closely, as you really inspect it, as you really stop to think about it, compare it with other scriptures, what you find are signs, indications, I think, that Cyrus is a kind of type of something greater, reflecting a greater glory than his own. I mentioned last week that one of the ways that you see that is in the overly exalted language used to describe such a pagan ruler. The Lord calls him my servant, uh, excuse me, my shepherd, the shepherd of my people, and my Messiah, my anointed one. This is the language of the promised end-time Davidic king now being applied to a heathen ruler. So there is exalted language, and I think you'll see I think you'll see this borne out, um, what I'm postulating here, as we go along in this text even more. The point here the Lord is making is that no other God has foretold with such specificity and accuracy the end from the beginning, what he plans to do and brought about everything that he announced. He announces this prophecy of Cyrus 150 years or more before it comes to pass. Christ, the Lord Jesus, coming into the world is still yet 700 years off. And the Lord is telling his people these new things that he will do. And this is the testimony, this is the kind of testimony that every human being needs to grapple with, the testimony of God's predictive word and being able even to look back from our vantage point and see exactly how the Lord has brought it about. Now, from the middle of verse 14 through verse 16, the Lord is going to elaborate on these things that he has declared, these new things that he has determined with regard to his anointed Messiah. He's going to elaborate on them. And the very first thing we see in the middle of verse 14 is this, that the Lord, what? The Lord loves him. The Lord loves this one whom he will raise up to deliver his people. He, the Lord, loves him. And of course, how do you take that language? In the immediate and sort of typological sense, I think you have to, at best, soften the idea of love here when the Lord, if the Lord is talking about Cyrus. The Lord loves this pagan king who gives honor to Marduk. And maybe you could say, well, what the Lord means is that the Lord has chosen him. He's 
called him in, a, in that sort of special sense of intimacy to do this task of delivering his people. He loves him in that sense. But the word is love. I mean, contrary to the NIV translation, I think here, all of the other translations have the word love, and that's the right word. The Lord loves him. I mean, this is the same word that's used in Psalm 46 of God's love for Jacob. It's the word that's used in Psalm 8 for God's love of Zion. It's the word that's used in Jeremiah 31 where God loves his people with, and God loves his people with an everlasting love. The Lord loves him, he says. So the strength of this word is another one of those indications that we're looking beyond merely a Persian king. This is about the Persian king, but it's about something beyond the Persian king. And though certainly God will use King Cyrus, he will. He will use him in the near-term fulfillment of this prophecy. And we see that in verse 14. With regard to Babylon, he, that is this Messiah, this anointed one, he shall perform his purposes, God's purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. And of course it was. And behind his success against the mighty Babylonian empire, the Lord says this in verse 19 and verse 15. Are you with me? I, even I, have spoken and called him. I mean, the God who called heaven and earth and they stood at his atten- at attention. The Lord calls this Messiah and I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. And of course he did prosper against the Babylonians, just as God predicted. Cyrus, who came to be called Cyrus the Great of Persia, along with the Medes, overthrew the city of Babylon in one night in 539 BC. But I also wonder if there is a greater Messiah in view here than, the, than Cyrus, then is there a broader Babylon in view? And there is, certainly, at least in terms of the application of this text. For this is the way John uses it, isn't it, in the book of Revelation. In John chapter 17, John refers to a Babylon whose name, he says, is a mystery. That is, it's pointing to something beyond itself. It's a reflection of something greater. And this Babylon dwells on seven hills, or in, to use another image, on a seven-headed beast, the epitome of worldly power. And it rises up against the Lord and against his anointed and persecutes his chosen people. And of course, this is long after ancient Babylon had ceased to be the great world power that it was in the days after Isaiah's ministry. In fact, Babylon really is any city of man that rises up against the Lord's Christ. And even Jerusalem could become a kind of Babylon if she would proudly reject her. And so Revelation chapter 11 calls Jerusalem the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. The Lord can look at his people and can say, you're Sodom, you're Egypt, you're Babylon. You have raised yourself up in pride against me, just like all of the nations of the world. And the Lord Jesus came to defeat all expressions of human pride and human rebellion against him. All of the world's Babylons, wherever they may be found, Now in verse 16, there's something very interesting going on here. So take a look. There's a kind of subtle shift here in the person 
in the person who's speaking. Take a look. Verse 16, a subtle shift in the person who's speaking, right? And in the beginning, there's no clear indication of a shift in speakers. It could well still be God who's been speaking all along, saying, draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been here. That sounds like it could just still be God talking. But then look at the end of the verse. By the end, the speaker is clearly differentiated from the God who was speaking earlier because the end of the verse says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So there's a me who's differentiated from God, even though God's been talking all along. I say again, there's a subtle shift, right? In verse 16. So God is, God is speaking, and then the Lord God has sent me. And this person who is sent, his coming is accompanied by an outpouring of God's spirit. And what's helpful in determining the speaker here is that this same voice continues to speak throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah and say the same things he's saying here. Let me show you where. Hold your finger here and turn over to chapter 61 and look at this voice saying again the same thing that he just said here. The Lord God has sent me, this Messiah says, and his spirit. Look at verse 1 of chapter 61. Here's the voice again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And in the context here, this is the voice of one who is called the servant of the Lord or the servant of Yahweh, Jehovah. The Spirit of the Lord, this person says, is upon me because the Lord has what? Because the Lord has anointed me. That's the same terminology, isn't it, that we see in chapter 48, this Messiah terminology used of Cyrus. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has what? Are you still with me? He has, middle of verse 1, He has sent me. That's again the same word as used in chapter 48, verse 16. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I have come to proclaim His word. Who is this person who is sent by God but who speaks as if it's still God talking, who is God's anointed one, his servant, who comes from God with the full outpouring of God's Spirit to bring about God's salvation. Well, we're not left in any doubt, are we? You're already miles ahead of me. We are not left in any doubt whatsoever because the Lord himself clarifies it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus himself stood up in his hometown in the temple, in the, in the, uh, the synagogue of, of, of Nazareth, and he opened the scripture to this very text. Can you imagine listening to Jesus preach from the book of Isaiah? Like, let me show you this book. And that's literally what he did. He read these very verses, and then he sat down and he said, today this passage is being fulfilled right in front of you. Here I am. I mean, it's an amazing thing. So we are left in no doubt whatsoever. Cyrus may do God's physical work of deliverance of the ancient people of Judah, but Christ alone delivers his true people from the eternal judgment of the Almighty God against our sin. Now, if you go back to chapter 48, and look again in verse 16 where we left off. Let's continue to go through. The Lord is elaborating on these things that he has 
declared to his people in verse 40, verse 16, the Lord says, From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. In other words, the Lord is saying, I haven't hidden what I'm going to do. I've prophesied it. I've been present with you in that prophetic word. If only you have ears to hear. He is not far away, far off. He is present in the very word that he has spoken. If only they will receive it. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of that is in the word made flesh. God with us in his prophetic word, the Lord Jesus Christ who came speaking and embodying the word. God was present in the person of his son and his son proclaimed God's words openly for all who had ears to hear. And Jesus himself was questioned about this in John chapter 18 and verse number 19 when he stood in the Jewish trial before the high priest. The high priest said to him, uh, or excuse me, he asked him, he questioned him, the verse says, about his disciples and he questioned him about his teaching And Jesus answered, I mean, he's questioning him about his teaching as if Jesus was promoting some kind of secret conspiracy here, right? And Jesus' answer is this, I have spoken openly in the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've been there right with you speaking this word. I have said nothing in secret. This is, this is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Lord is saying, that Christ is saying to us here in this book of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse number 16. And what is the Lord doing? He's saying to, to the people of Israel, and listen, friends, he's saying to all of us, I have spoken, I have spoken openly. You have no excuse for your ignorance and for your unbelief. There's no, there's no cloak for it. I've not hidden this. I've declared it. I have set it out there. I have pleaded with you to hear it and to receive it and to believe it. I have given you, the Lord says, friends, so much access to my Bible. I've spoken. I've put it in every bookstore in your city. I've put it all over the Internet. I have given you so much access to what I have said. The question is, do you have ears to hear it? You, do, you, do, you, do you pick it up and read it? Really, do you pick it up and read it and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant. The Lord has said to you, I have put my preachers in the pulpits across your country. And they stand up openly preaching the gospel. They preach it on the radio. I put them on the internet. I sometimes send them to stand on the street corner and preach it to you. I have not spoken in secret. My word is pleading. Wisdom cries out in the streets and in the marketplace. Come, hear. This is what the Lord is saying to them and to us. Will you hear and receive what I have to say? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ died for sinners. That he was nailed to the cross in the place of wickedness. The place of wicked men to take the punishment of God for all who will believe and trust in Him. The Lord has made that message known, and it is yours to receive it, to hear it. But in verses 17 to 19 now, the Lord is going to have to lament that the peace and the righteousness and the blessing that could have been theirs, Israel has missed out on because of their unwillingness to hear. Thus, 
says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to what? It is always to the profit of people to listen to God, who leads you in the way that you should go. And then the Lord laments in 18, Oh, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, right? Just how, how often is a river flowing? It's just like always going. It's just you look at one bit of water and it's gone and there's just more water. It's just constant. You might, your peace would have been like a constant stream and your righteousness like the waves of the sea, right? Just one upon another upon another in endless succession would have been your righteousness and your peace. And verse 19, your offspring would have been like the sands and your descendants like its grains. And what is that? What is that? That's the Abrahamic promise, right? If only you had listened, these people were in danger of missing out on the promise. That promise that comes through uh, to all who are truly in Christ, who are heirs of the promises made to Abraham. These people were in danger of invoking the curse for breaking their covenant. And some of the saddest words in the English language when they're spoken together are these, if only. People look back with regret on all that they have missed out on that can never be recovered. They use those words, don't they? If only. Oh, if only, the Lord says. How pregnant those words are with so much potential and so much loss. Oh, that you would have had constant peace and endless renewal of your righteousness and eternal blessing from the hand of God. And so often when we say those two little words, we say them after it's too late to do anything about it, right? Oh, if only. But look what the Lord does. Even yet, even in their state, the Lord has promised that he will deliver them. We saw this last week. And why will the Lord deliver a people yet in that state? He says, for my own sake, because of your connection to my son. For that reason and that reason, for my name's sake, for my glory, For my reputation, I will save you. I will bring you out of Babylon. The Lord even yet calls upon them to hear and obey. And that's what we have in verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21, follow the text. The Lord commands Judah to joyfully leave Babylon behind when he brings about their deliverance through Cyrus. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it and send it out to the end of the earth. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Shout it from the rooftops, he says. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out, just like when he provided for them in the Exodus. So now he says, I will take care of you when you go back into the land of promise. When you make that march of all of those months across those deserts and into the promised land, I will be with you. And of course, all of this is pointing forward because there is a greater rock than the rock in the wilderness, right? There is that rock that followed them all the way. There is that rock of ages that was cleft for me. And from that rock, the water and the blood flowed. The living water of life flows from the broken body of Christ. And all who partake of the water that flows from that rock in the desert, they live forever. He says, the Lord takes care of his people. So get out, leave Babylon behind. 
this city that is the epitome of all of the pride of humanity against God. Leave it behind. Get out and get into Jerusalem. Isn't that the message here? And do it with shouts of joy and praise to God. And of course, in Revelation chapter 21, John sees what he calls a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God with all of the glory of God, the realm of all of those who follow Christ, this new Jerusalem. And just before he sees the new Jerusalem, he says this in Revelation chapter 18 and verse number 2. He hears, he, he hears an angel saying this, actually, calling out to him, saying these words, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And of course, the literal ancient city of Babylon had fallen long before. But he, then he says this, Revelation 18.4, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. And if you stay there and you take part in her sins, you will also share in her what? In her plagues. And remember, the Lord has already promised great plagues upon Babylon. And eventually it will become the haunt of jackals. If you stay there, if you reject my promises, if you doubt my ability to take care of you in the midst of the wilderness, if you refuse to come to me, all of that, all that falls on Babylon will fall upon you. And of course, sadly, only a remnant of Jews left Babylon after the takeover of Babylon by Persia. In fact, the Jews continued to have a large presence there, a really um, influential presence in Babylon for, for many centuries. And this is not a you know, a condemnation of absolutely every single individual who, who stayed in Babylon. I'm sure that the Lord providentially um, kept some people there due to their age or whatever. But the Lord tells these people, Babylon is not your home. Babylon is not where I put my name. Babylon is not where the true God of the universe is worshipped. Get out. Leave. I'm going to provide salvation for you. Take it. Leave Babylon and get to Jerusalem. But too many of those people stayed. Why did they stay, do you think? Well, you know, honestly, their life in Babylon was not all that terrible when you thought about it. It wasn't like Egypt where they're being whipped and said, make more bricks, less straw, right? They, they started businesses. They bought homes. They set, put down roots in Babylon. They lived, in some cases, uh, plenty comfortably there. They just got pretty comfortable in the world. And for that reason, they were unwilling to leave. And I think that is true, that there are so many people who are unwilling to come to Christ because the world is just too comfortable. What need do they feel to flee to the Lord Jesus? What impending doom do they sense? All continues just fine. This world, this world, friends, is headed for destruction. It is headed for the judgment of God just as surely as that ancient city was. This world is the city of destruction, the city that is doomed. And the ruins of that ancient city discovered in the 18th century bear testimony to this fact. And the whole world will fall under the judgment of the Maybe many of them were just too comfortable. And you know, I think maybe some of them were just too concerned with what it was going to cost. I mean, the dangers... Of, of making their way to Jerusalem. Can you imagine? I mean, this is a journey of, of months we're talking about, especially going at a slow pace with your entire family, your little ones and your old and your 
your animals and your possessions and the carts and all. I mean, you're talking about a long and perilous journey. There are no, there are no Motel 6s. There are no Ramada Inns. There's no IHOP. Right? I mean, you, you, you really had to plan. I mean, we can even hardly even imagine that. Maybe if you're old enough, you can remember driving um, the routes across the country before there were the interstate highway system and you kind of had to sort of plan where you were going to go and where you were going to stop, where you were going to find gas, where you were going to find food. These people, no doubt, I'm sure many of them were afraid. Can the Lord really take care of us on this long and perilous journey? And what will happen if we finally get back there? There's persecu- We've heard testimony that there's persecution of God's people in that land. All of the nations around them are trying to tear down the wall, are trying to attack them, are trying to stop the work. And Jesus said, you know, many people don't respond to the gospel because of the riches and the cares of this world on the one hand, or on the other hand, because of the hardship and the suffering that is going to accompany being a follower of Jesus. And it's one of those two things. It's either the cares of the world that, and the, the riches of the world that choke out the gospel seed or the harshness of that sun of hardship that burns them up and they fall away. I'm sure there were many people who, even while they heard this prophetic word from Isaiah and read it in all of the generations to come, yet still had no ears to hear what the Lord was truly saying. And I want to remind you that one day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to judge the whole world that every single Babylon will be thrown down. All who reject him, the Bible says, will be cast into outer darkness, into a lake of fire. So what's the Lord's message to us? Flee. Leave the city of destruction. Chase after the celestial city. Make your way to the new Jerusalem. And not just flee, but leave behind every vestige of this sinful world. All of the leaven of Egypt, leave it behind. How many of us have parts of our lives that are still tainted by the evil of the Babylons in which we live? The lust of the flesh is still alive and well in us. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Listen, he says these things are passing away. They're all doomed The world is passing away and its lusts are passing away and all of that is going to be destroyed. Don't, he said, leave it all behind. Leave it. That's the old, that's gone. You have a new life in front of you. That's where you need to be headed. That's where you need to be after. And I'll say this, if, if you fill your mind, if all you fill your mind with and your imagination with are Babylon's entertainments, Babylon's music and movies and books and people, then no wonder that the new Jerusalem seems like a dream, like just a fairy tale. No, it's the other way around. We're in a dream now. And one day, we will be awakened fully. And then we will. I mean, I'm telling you, you're gonna, maybe you'll even remember this sermon in that age to come. We will look back on this day and say, oh, we, that was as if it were a dream. We were getting a glimpse in those Lord's days of the the reality, but it was so faint and it was so distant, and we were in such we were surrounded by so many idols. We just we just had to keep it in front of us to to see that it was true and real and coming. And now, oh, now we see. Flee this present evil age, the Lord says. Join the pilgrimage to the holy city. And my friend, if you do get out then it is by the power of God. It is by the work of his Messiah. Just as surely as these Jews were delivered by the 
raising up of Cyrus. And so, well, what does the Lord command you to do if you get out? If you leave Babylon behind, he says, declare this, verse 20, right? Tell people, proclaim it, give praise to the Lord, say out to the ends of the earth, the Lord has redeemed his people. Open your mouth, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Proclaim. I mean, doesn't our Lord deserve eternal praise for what he's done for every one of us? Open your mouth, tell Take this away, really. There are, there are two commands in this text. One, get out. And two, tell. A pretty simple sermon. Pretty simple applications. You can take those two home. Tell. Open your mouth. Proclaim His glory. Speak of His wondrous kindness to you and to all who will trust in Him. Support the mission of the gospel to the end of the earth, as the text says, through your prayers and through your gifts. And then finally, we just have to end where the text ends. And I have to tell you that the text comes back with a sober warning, doesn't it? In verse 22, look at the very end. This is the very the last place we go. The whole chapter ends with a warning. And remember he said earlier that those who trust the Lord, that He will provide for them so that they can be redeemed out of Babylon and come to the new Jeru- to come to the Jerusalem and you know see the true temple built. Those who believe in Him and trust Him, He said, their peace will be like a river, right? And now He says in verse twenty-two, there is no peace. There is no peace for the wicked. One day, all of the fleeting peace that the world enjoys, that it's tried to build up and support itself with, is all going to come crashing down. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will visibly appear to judge all sin and all idolatry and all rebellion. And all of the things that people have trusted in will be completely gone. The question is, where will you be? Where will you stand on the last day? Will you stand on the rock? Or will your feet be on the sand? And when the storm comes, and listen, there's storms in this life, and there is a final storm that will come and sweep everything away. And when that storm of judgment comes, when the flood brings God's wrath upon the earth again, Will you be able to stand? Are you saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed by His name? Leave all of Babylon behind and proclaim His glory. You're a citizen of the celestial city, so shout and proclaim. Tell. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, say this with a shout. Proclaim it, send it to the end of the earth and say, The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all of the redemption that you have provided and the grace that you have effected in our hearts, giving us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray that that would continue. We ask that you would open the eyes of those who are still yet blind and grant us faith that we would leave the world behind and cling to the Lord Jesus to proclaim his glory. Open our mouths, Lord. Deliver us from self-consciousness the idolatry of what others think about us. Fill us up so much with what you've done that we can't, in Jesus' name.